Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on thebigscreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Doc Blitz. The greatest trick a movie ever pulled was convincing you that the ending you thought was coming didn't exist. Oh, that was so deep. I think it fits pretty well with what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome to Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, the Paul Bunyan Broadcasting Movie Podcast, sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2, just down from the airport, home of $5 movie nights on Tuesdays, and a great place to go catch what is currently showing on the big screen. I'm Joel Hoover. And I'm still reeling for that opening. That was deep. That was deeper than my bowl of Cheerios. Dave, I knew you'd appreciate that. And I knew you'd appreciate it because that comes from a, a movie that is a favorite of yours. And one Both that of you, us, yeah. Yeah, one that you introduced to me, if I remember correctly. You you first introduced The Usual Suspects to me and and gave me the chance to check that out. And boy, am I glad that you did. I just watched that on an airplane trip back here to <laughs> Minnesota. Watch that on the plane ride, and I was. Did you have remi- people behind you, kind of leaning over to check? What was what, he watching? What is that? Oh, that looks good. Not to my knowledge. <laughs> Although when I watch a movie, sometimes on a flight, I kind of wish that that would happen because then it'd be like, yeah, isn't this cool? Isn't this cool? Although I didn't have an earbud to share, I had over ear headphones, so that would have been a little bit difficult then. But it's just one of those movies that when you see it, it's like, hey, this is really hard to stay away from watching again and it initiated the idea for today's podcast episode which is discussing twist endings in movies for that reason we're going to put it right up front yes spoiler alert if you don't want to know we will be discussing things with uh, no varnishing over, so we're going to get right to the guts of things. And So if there's movies with twists, uh, be advised. Be heavily advised. That's right. But before we dive into our twist episode, a couple of topical things we should probably touch base on. This last week, a new box office champion of all time was crowned officially. Uh, I think they really kind of tweaked things to make it happen, but yes. it, it still happened. So Avengers Endgame is now the highest grossing movie of all time, beating Avatar. Of course, that's not adjusted for inflation, and if you do that, Gone with the Wind is probably never going to be beaten, ever. No. But uh, congratulations to, uh, and I, I, t- I get a big kick out of, you know, James Cameron who directed Avatar. Apparently it's a tradition in Hollywood, the former champion will put out some sort of a trade announcement saying congratulations. And so here you get a picture of, I did you see this? You get a picture of Iron Man looking like one of the, um, oh, the Pandorans with all those little floaty jellyfish-looking things all over him, like, which is a scene from Avatar, yes. but substituting in Tony Stark and, and Iron Man. So it's kind of a crossover, ha, ha, ha. That was pretty classy, and, it was, and he did the same thing with Titanic where you had the Avengers logo sinking the boat 
You know, so there was that too. You know, tip of the cap to James Cameron for yeah. doing that because I saw people on the internet who were bringing up his comments about superhero movies and and how they they've almost become too much or they're making too many or things like that. A lot of internet people who were taking time to revel in the fact that the Avengers uh, Endgame be- became the biggest movie of all time were kind of reveling in also clowning James Cameron's past comments on superhero movies. So tip of the cap to him for yeah. doing that because people were were kind of choosing to go a little bit a little bit more of the uh the the snide route, shall we say? Take the always take the high road. When in doubt, yeah. take the high yeah. road. And whether he's whether his opinion still stands, uh you still have to respect what happened. I like it or I don't like it, but it is, so here we go. So congratulations. We have a new champ. We'll see how many years it'll hold on until we topple it again. Another one uh, kind of ties into not just something going on right now in Hollywood, but something we had done a few episodes ago. Uh, go back to our To Boldly Go Star Trek episode. Uh, one of the issues that's happening right now with Star Trek, but also with larger implications, was over about 15 years ago, Viacom which owned Paramount Pictures and CBS, split. It basically had an internal divorce, and it's the company split. CBS became its own company. Paramount became its own company with majority shareholders on both that were the same people. And uh, so Star Trek as a brand got split. Now, we talked about this in that episode, so we won't recap it. But there is uh, growing and growing and growing. It's always been a matter of time, not if, but when that uh, call it the former Viacom company will come back together and it looks like an imminent announcement is on the horizon that they will be rejoining. And one of the key factors to make this happen is Star Trek, putting it back under one roof and not both. So it's kind of a complicated story. If you want more details, Google it, but it looks like it's coming. The funny thing, Dave, is that you are thrilled about this and yet at the same time you're kind of rolling your eyes going, it's about time you guys got this figured out because... You've got people who are board members on one who are also board members on the other, and it's like, this should have been obvious, and yet there were reasons for the split that we have talked about in the past, but finally it sounds like they might be might be coming back together, although it ended up being because the dollar bill spoke. Well, welcome to business. That's how yes. it always works. But you know, for as a Star Trek fan, I really just hope that this is going to help realign the continuity which clearly from I'm and I'm not talking about JJ Abrams I'm talking about uh Star Trek Discovery in particular I'd like to see a course correction on that so you've got the new Star Trek Picard coming out which just had the first trailer drop or first two trailers drop looks really good and clearly there's harkenings back to previous continuity which looks really really good and I like moments like that but hopefully this is going to be something that is if not story-wise but aesthetically going to have some sort of a continuity issue that will be less of an issue than the first two seasons of star trek discovery but that's a whole other thing so those that's kind of what's going on on a topical level right now yeah thank you for the update thank you you're very welcome that's what we do we dig deep yes although for you as a star trek fan in terms of yeah continuity of story there's hope that maybe there will be a little bit There's more hope. restored that that will come. I'm optimistic. I have hope, but I will wait and see. 
So this, if there's a lot of money that's driving things and merchandising, this is why things don't look exactly the same. It's not because we can't. It's because we can license a whole new look and make some more money that we weren't before. Well, in that case, I'm not optimistic. But if the continuity issues because of this can be resolved, then I'm all on board. So if it's going to be Star Trek, then deliver Star Trek. That's all I'm saying. That's right. So there we go. All right, twist endings. Let's go. We've got a lot to unpack here with these. What? Once more, one more time. Spoilers forthcoming. So we're talking, oh, the sixth sense. We're talking the usual suspects. If there's a twist in it, we've got you covered, and maybe a few that you didn't see coming. Oh, see, twist. Yep. Oh. Maybe we should try to keep the movie titles spoken before we get into the twist itself so that people can dodge bullets if they need to well we've already given you a reason to put on your kevlar so heads up be ready with the pause button if we mention a title that you're about to watch on netflix yeah this movie better hit pause that's right better skip ahead what makes a twist work dave i i was thinking about this when i was thinking about the movie that initiated this idea the usual suspects and the usual suspects has its own way that it makes the twist in that movie work but what makes a twist work in a movie better than in some other movies where you try to insert a twist because some movies do them better than others. Well, let me do that by walking you through an example. Uh, So we're going to start with our first twist to answer this question in kind of a roundabout way, the sixth sense. We already mentioned it. Bruce Willis turns out for the majority of the movie is dead. So I see dead people. He's unaware that you're talking to a ghost. You know, he know the kid knows He's dead. They don't know that they're dead. So that's the twist. You don't realize that pretty much the whole movie he's been dead past the opening scene. But when you go back and rewatch it, it doesn't cheat. Now, this is the answer. What makes a good twist? You, it, it works. The narrative works. The clues work. It's not something that they just thought, eh, let's do this. And they throw it in there and hope it sticks and it doesn't. If you go back and watch The Sixth Sense, knowing what the twist is, there are hints all along. And I'm not just talking about the color red. Anytime that a dead person shows up, there's the color red, which is put in there, kind of like the oranges in The Godfather when someone dies. Um, maybe you didn't know that one was coming. So there's those. There's that. But Bruce Willis wears the exact same clothes, maybe in different versions, because he's wearing a three-piece suit. So there's some points where he's wearing the vest or the or the jacket over it or just the shirt. But anything he was wearing in that first scene in the movie where he is alive but gets killed, if we find out, he's wearing some version of that the rest of the movie. So you're not cheating. And there are elements that if you know what you're looking for, knowing what the twist is, oh, so it works. It's not something that's just thrown in just to give people a twist ending like the fog monster on Lost that never got resolved. You know, there was really no logic to it. They just threw it in to make you go, huh. And ultimately it falls on its face when you see the whole thing said and done because there's nothing to it. So if Bruce Willis just turned out to be dead and then you watch the whole movie, you're like, well, how could he possibly? But there there are parts that don't make sense. There's points where it looks like he's been having a conversation with somebody well, wouldn't Bruce Willis suspect, why am I talking to this woman and she's not responding? How rude is she? Jeez, you know, it might be interesting if the scene started and he's norked at this woman for reasons we don't understand because we didn't see the previous scene where he's talking to her thinking he's alive and she has no idea that there's anybody else in the room. So, of course, she's not going to respond to him, but it makes no sense. Know what I mean? So if it works and the storyline and the threads and the logistics all line up, then you've got yourself a good twist. 
it's proof of good writing and good planning. Yes. Because if you are going to thread in elements like that throughout the course of the movie that show ultimately that this twist is going to come about, you've got to have that continuity, like you said. You have to have you have to have consistency. You can't cheat on this. If if there are certain elements that have been a certain way with that lead then to the twist happening, then then whoever is a part of that twist has to be a part of those elements, like you were saying about Bruce Willis. And I like that because then when you do go back, it, it makes you reconsider and go, now wait a minute, let's let's see if this is the case. And it's true. You you have to thread everything together, you know, and that, that takes exceptionally skilled writing. That's why some of these twist endings that we're going to talk about, when you consider these movies more often than not, these are these are excellent movies that are considered among the best, and part of it is because their writing is bulletproof. It's ironclad. They they have everything tied off in terms of this leading to this and this explaining this. It's the product of a great deal of planning and really in-depth planning because if you want to have a twist, like you said, you have got to make sure that you've got everything tied off and that it makes sense. You know, I'll give you a better enunciation on what exactly what you're saying. It has to be part of the story. It can't just be some spice. Well, this story is a little bland. Let's throw something in. Let's not think about it. Let's just do it. I am actually your brother, like some sort of a twist ending. But you know, where you find out that say. Here's another one of those twists, Halloween 2, the original. Michael Myers oh, is actually the brother that we didn't know of Laurie Strode. Does it work? Yeah, kind of. But then they've kind of retconned it with a new one. The new 2018 is its own version of Halloween 2, ignoring all the sequels where there is no family relation anymore. So it's a very, very complicated uh, chronology there in the Halloween series. So depending on your perspective, but did that twist work? So it kind of gives a motivation behind the character. He kills his one sister in the opening scene and then many, many years later comes after what apparently is the other sister and then the family lineage and all of that in that one continuity. Would that be a twist? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, the the whole sibling thing sometimes works, sometimes doesn't work. And I know this is just one offshoot of what we were just talking about. But for every Halloween 2 that there might be, you may have an Empire Strikes Back where yeah. you add a twist in like Darth Big Vader telling twist. Luke, I am your father. And it made... Perhaps at the time, for some people, I, I mean, for people, I think at the time, there was just the shock value. That's one of the big shocks in movie history. Of Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh, they're related. When you think about it, when I watch the movies back, it's like, well, we don't really have any reason to suspect that he is, except for the things that they occasionally dropped in during the course of Empire Strikes Back. It's only when Return of the Jedi comes around that it makes more sense, because at the time, people were going, no, wait. Obi-Wan said that Darth Vader killed Luke's father, just like he said. What How he this... said was true from a certain point of view. Right. It took Return of the Jedi to then make that thread make sense and to string that together then and for Obi-Wan to explain it a little bit more of why he said what he said, which he explains somewhat adequately in that movie. But it makes enough sense then. They left enough plot threads open to where they were able to then fashion together making this twist work, which it worked for them, 
maybe didn't quite work quite as well for Halloween, or at least it became a little bit more convoluted. You know, speaking of Star Wars, though, which we always circle back to in this podcast, uh, when I get time to show Star Wars, whether it's to my kiddo or to a friend that's never seen Star Wars, I would, you know, to defend where I would start, I would probably start showing with Rogue One because it's modern. But it leads right into the original, and I would start with the original trilogy and skip out the prequel trilogy for, if no other reason, you don't get that shock in Empire Strikes Back. You already know, if you watch the original, the prequel trilogy, that Anakin becomes Darth Vader. So when he says that in Empire, it's a throwaway line, because Luke is only finding out what everybody else knows. You know, as the audience member, you don't get that. That greatest shock in movie history... Out the window. So let's skip that. For one, it's subpar. The third one was pretty good, but we've talked about that. But then you get this moment, and parents nowadays are videotaping not the movie, but their kids' reaction to that line when they're being introduced to Star Wars. <gasps> no way! And the, and the reactions run the gamut. You know, it's, it's really interesting. Oh, yeah. So if I was going to introduce Star Wars to somebody for that reason, and amongst others... I would start with Rogue One because that leads right into the original and then you go from there. I'd almost be inclined to hold Rogue One off because then after you see all of that, it makes you appreciate that story a little bit more. But that's that's just another way of looking at it. And it does kind of change the narrative of Star Wars anyway. But where Luke is concerned with his dad, his dad, Anakin, is the underlying motivation in a lot of ways behind Luke. Luke wants to become and follow in the footsteps of his father not really fully understanding what all those footsteps entailed. He wants to learn the ways of the Jedi. He's motivated by his dad, and then all of a sudden, while this motivation that's helped him become such an upstanding intergalactic citizen, he's what? You know, it really throws not just the audience's expectations away, but Luke has to re-examine everything, and he comes back much more resolved in in Jedi. I want to bring forth another element that I think makes movie twists and plot twists work is that the audience comes in with a preconceived expectation of how they think this movie should play out and then it gets flipped on their on its head and when i was thinking about examples there were there were three examples that came to mind of movies that i think also fit when it comes to a plot twist kind of ending but if you would think about them in a modern movie sense you wouldn't necessarily think they are big, shocking twists. You have to go back, and you have to kind of step your mind back into the way people consume movies at that time. And I'm talking about three movies that span through the 40s, and then one that I think was around 1950 or the early 1950s. And I'm talking about Casablanca, Double Indemnity, and Sunset Boulevard, okay. which I think all you would have, go to classics. I think all have great twists to them let's start with Casablanca you come in expecting this is going to be some kind of a a war romance type movie where Humphrey Bogart will end up with Ingrid Bergman in the end you know they they still love each other even though they've been away they're still going to end up together well you get twist on twist on twist at the end of the movie first you get you get a, a whole slew of double crossing that takes place, especially with where you start to figure out that, hey, Rick Blaine, who we, was one of the inspirations for the movie title that we have, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Um, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> he, wait, wait till Rick hears that. So he ends up he ends up turning the tables, you think, maybe on, on the main characters, and you think he's going to run away with 
um, with Elsa, Ingrid Bergman's character. You think he's going to to turn the tables there. Well, actually, he ends up turning the tables on Claude Rains' police character, and he allows the other two to get away, um, including the woman he loves. But she's with she's married to. Um, She's married to this spy, and he allows both of them to get away. His true colors end up showing in the end that he wants the best for them as far as helping other people, and so they need to get out of the country. And so he gives that that incredible speech of, are the problems of two people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world? And then off they go, and then you think, well... Now he's going to get taken in and arrested. Well, no, then Claude Rains turns the table on the Nazis as they come to arrest him, and he goes and tells them, round up the usual suspects. And then all of a sudden, Rick has this appreciation for this uh, for this policeman who actually is a little bit undercover in his own way there as part of Vichy France. And then off they go, strolling off, saying, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. But you don't you expect it to to be that, hey, Rick's going to end up with Elsa in the end because that's the way so many of those movies went at that time. But instead, you get one twist after another after another, and you get a completely different kind of ending. Same with Double Indemnity, which many view as the one of the essential and even the original film noirs that exists. And with twists galore at the end where uh, it, it's like, hey, this is this is really dark, and, and the guy doesn't get the girl, and the girl ends up double crossing the guy and and this all just went completely wrong and off the rails it's like and, a pro wrestling plot yeah and then you have this this ending uh, this ending that just makes you feel so so odd and hollow inside because it's like this didn't go the way that i expected it to same with sunset boulevard it's like this actress woman is crazy she's just nuts and and the guy who is the pawn in all of this who's kind of narrating this well then you realize Oh, he's the murdered guy in the pool at the very beginning. And how did we get to this? There's like that, but there's no out in this. And then she, she's like, "Come get, uh, come get my close up." As she makes her way eerily down the steps, and and in the view of of the press and media of Hollywood. And then it's like, that's what we're ending on. It, it's twisting what your preconceived notion of what you are going to get from this movie is. And making it into something completely different, I think, works for a twist ending. And for people in the 1940s and early 1950s, they probably saw movies like those and said, Oh, wow, this is not what I expected. This is not what I expect out of out of the movies when I go to them. But it was different for its time. I, I'll give you two examples of twists that changed the movie that did not happen at the end that changed what everyone thought. And again, we're just going to remind everyone there are spoilers here in this episode. I think we probably can't say that enough. Very, very recently, we even talked about at the start of the show, Avengers Endgame. So you go to Infinity War, and you've got Thanos who's killed half the people on Earth, including half the Avengers, and that's your cliffhanger ending leading into Endgame. So you go into the movie like, all right, they're going to find him, and they're going to kill him, and all these Avengers are going to come back, and it'll be good. That kind of happens in the first roughly 20 minutes of the movie, and they kill him, and then you cut to that cute, the card 10 years later, or whatever, how many years it was. What? 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 No, what? You just, you don't see that. You, and yeah. now the whole movie is going in a whole other direction that you didn't think it was going to go. I was genuinely surprised yeah. when that happened, and the time jump 
especially surprise me. Time jumps are always a little bit jarring in movies because it's like there's so much time that's passed. There, there's a lot of time that has passed now. It's like that kind of hits you heavily when you see that. Oh yeah, you're thinking you're not thinking that's going to happen. You know, maybe you see something at the end of the movie, ten years later. Here's how things have really evolved after the heroes have done it. No, the heroes still kind of lose in the beginning. They kill them, but everyone's still gone. How are you going to fix this 10 years later? What? Some have happy endings, some don't, and then they risk it all. And then if you're thinking, well, they're going to go back in time and they're going to stop them from using the gauntlet and they're going to... Well, yeah, but not in the way you're thinking. You know, they all go to different periods. It really takes your expectations and throws it upside down and changes everything about what you think the movie's going to be. And all of this happens within the first, what, 20, 30 minutes of the movie, something like that. And the rest of the movie goes from there. It's it's a mind bender. And I think maybe one of the earliest versions of the same kind of thing has got to be Psycho. I was just thinking that, yep. Psycho is, it's got a double twist to it. And one is roughly halfway through the movie, maybe not even halfway through the movie. And then, of course, the big twist at the end. So you got Psycho where it's all about embezzlement, really, in the beginning of the movie. You've got Janet Lee's character. She has stolen money that was from her job, and she's on the run with the money. And and uh, and then her conscience hits her, and, okay, I think I'll go back and return the money. But before she can, she gets murdered in the shower by a character that we had just met five minutes earlier and now the entire movie is about something completely different. And so it's not about embezzlement anymore. In fact, it's not even about the money. The guy that killed her didn't even know about the money. Nope. And you find and you think it's not the guy that kills her, it's this mother. But then the twist at the end, you find out that the mother and this and this guy are the same person with a psychological breakdown or a, a psychiatric breakdown. There we go. And that's the big, big twist. She's been dead for years. What? And it's a double twist that works to the point where Alfred Hitchcock, who directed that, did not permit people in the theaters. Once the movie started, if you were late, you weren't coming in. You'll have to catch tickets to the next show. And that is one of the biggest twist endings of all time. But a lot of people kind of forget about the opening twist, not to mention the fact that Janet Lee, who stars as, um, oh, Marion Crane is her name. Yes. Uh, at the time, was one of the big stars in Hollywood. Yeah, and, and you don't kill big stars yeah. halfway through a movie. It's halfway through the movie, the big name above the credits is gone. Well, what? That's like Drew Barrymore in the opening scene of Scream. You don't know that she's not going to make it through, and she was having a big career revitalization then. She doesn't make it past the credits. Steven Seagal doesn't make it 20 minutes through the movie executive decision. He's one of the big names above the title, gone, which was not a bad thing because it was Steven Seagal. But anyway, now I'm going to get threatening letters, <laughs> probably from Steven Seagal. So, you know, that kind of started that trend. A big star, oh, this will be a fun movie. I love so-and-so. And so-and-so doesn't make it 20 minutes into the movie. Wow, where is this going? Who's going to take over as the main guy? What's the story going to be? It changes everything. And those are two really good examples, a couple of really good examples, I guess, of uh, a big twist earlier than you'd think. Yeah, Psycho was a stunner. Oh, It was a stunner in a lot of ways. And because of, like you said, that double twist midway through the movie and then you just add another one in later on in the movie. It took Hitchcock's idea of a thriller movie to a level that had never previously been touched before. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater located on Highway 2 just down from the airport as we were talking about twist endings or really twists in general in movies and how they work and what makes them work. 
So we'll touch on one that we kind of touched on earlier. I think I'll let you do this one. Uh, we got to jump in with the usual suspects. Yeah, we really do. Because which took his title from Casablanca, by it the did. way. And the usual suspects has, a, like when you look at, at twist lists of the best movies to have a twist in them. The it's usu- up there. The it's usual there. suspects is pretty much always on the list. And I think it works because in the same sense that you go into a movie expecting to know how it's going to go, like what I had talked about previously, and that creates for a twist. In the usual suspects, you are drawn into the movie so much that you don't see the twist coming. You sympathize with the character of Verbal Kint in his own, in kind of some, in some ways. You you have sympathy for him. He's the odd man out. He's who's the really, odd... He's really only part of this group because he just happened to be there right. in a lot of ways. And he's he's a crippled guy who is trying to reflect on on a a crime that went badly and it sounds like he was he was kind of pushed and pulled a little bit here and there when it came to how all of this came together he had his part to play but but he had enough about his character that you would feel a little bit of sympathy for this guy especially as he's starting to break down more and more as he's telling this story and he doesn't want to believe that this guy who he looked up to is this master criminal is actually mastermind. the master criminal, which is what the detective is is ultimately determining, is that the guy who he looked up to, um, uh, Michael, uh, or uh, Keaton. yeah, Michael Keaton, Ma- not Michael, not Keaton. My- not Michael Keaton. Sorry, um, yeah, it, uh, I can't remember his first name. They just call him Keaton the whole movie. Oh, but Kaiser um, Soze, who is Kaiser Soze? And you're kind of being led to believe that it's going to turn out that it is Keaton that's been pulling the strings. Even Gabriel Byrne, who plays Keaton in the movie. Even he was saying when he saw the movie, I was thinking Mr. I was, Keaton. yeah, I was thinking I was going to be revealed as Kaiser Soze, but it doesn't really work out that way. Dean Keaton, Dean Keaton, thank yeah, you. yeah, not not Michael Keaton. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been funny. Oh, that would have been funny if Michael Keaton him, showed up playing himself. Playing himself, yeah, Dean <laughs> Keaton. So, and verbal as the detective is breaking all this down, yeah, you see verbal breaking down as well as he hits as this realization of hey. Dean Keaton is Kaiser Sose starts to become revealed. And then it's like, okay, I think we've got all this figured out and all of this is tied off. And then Verbal leaves and leaves with essentially a slap on the wrist. And then the detective turns around. And as he's talking to his partner, all of a sudden he looks at the board behind him and he sees this element and that element that were a part of Verbal Kent's story. And all of a sudden, it all completely gets flipped on its head. He made the story up based on what he was seeing on the board and just conjured everything up. And all of a sudden, you realize the least likely character is, in fact, the mastermind, Kaiser Soze. I mean, it's this great movie. And if you go back and you watch the movie, depending on who you listen to, and there's probably 15 different versions of what actually happened when they did the movie, that, uh, you know, obviously Brian Singer knew what was going to happen, and the writers, of course. And according to, depending on your perspective, um, so did Kevin Spacey. He was told. And so I want you to play this part so that you could look at it as one of two ways. For example, there's the lineup scene where they all have to read the statement. And the statement is a nonsensical, crazy kind of a statement during this lineup. But the way that 
that that uh, verbal says it, you can look at it as just nonchalant, or you can pick something else up that's a little more under the car, under the under the surface. And there's a few moments where that happens throughout the course of the story, when when you know what the twist is, the same scene plays very differently when you know what's coming versus when you don't, and there's nothing different about it. So it kind of alludes to both sides, and that there are some hints, but then again, there aren't hints. Right, when it's you, masterfully done. When you think back on it, plus the other crazy thing too is, you are seeing, you are seeing Verbal's telling of the story. When the movie ends, and when it ended on on the plane ride, I found myself thinking, how much of what I saw was actually what happened? How much of what I saw when Verbal was telling the story actually happened in terms of the sequence of events leading to him being there, like? What what was real and what wasn't? Was it just the elements where you see verbal moving along next to the the boat and then and then going into hiding? Are those the only things that didn't actually happen? Were there other things that happened in there that also didn't happen? Like how much of it actually happened and didn't actually happen? Which elements were the made up ones? Which ones that I was seeing were the real ones? And all of those things. Yeah, I, I agree completely. It's uh, it is a masterfully done movie. Um, and unfortunately, I think it's going to get kind of tarnished a little bit over time with what's going on in real life with Kevin Spacey and with Brian Singer. Right. It, I hope it does not take away from what is truly good work. It really, really is. Uh, Kevin or uh, uh, McClory, who had helped to write it, um, who's really done some good things. It's it's a masterful job from start to finish. The way it is shot, the score. Who? What? How many editors are also the 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 film editors are also the composer for the score? I mean, John Ottman, same guy, and he's worked with X Men and other things too. How often does that happen? Right. But it was masterfully cut and really good score. Fantastic performances. Even when you look at Benicio Del Toro, who realizes that he's the Meg Griffin of the story, that it doesn't matter what he does, so it doesn't really matter what he says. So he comes up with an idea, let my character not be able to be understood at all. And anything I say... Brilliant, right? Yeah, it's like listening to Chewbacca. He's saying something, but nobody can understand him, you know, because it doesn't matter. His job is essentially to die. So he kind of had fun with it. Right. And I mean, it's it's when you think about it, that's brilliant. You know, who needs to understand what you're saying? Yeah. Flip you. Flip you I, for didn't, real. I didn't know that until I read into the movie a little bit more and I I thought that was great because it adds another element to it. And and of course, as we mentioned at the top of the the podcast episode today, you get one of the great lines in movie history. The greatest trick the devil the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And like that, he's gone. That's right. It's a great movie. It's one of those that as soon as it's over, you need to go back and watch it again. Right, and that brings me to another element that I think makes plot twists possible, and that is the use of narrative structure. And I'm going to pull two Christopher Nolan movies. I know where you're this. going. I was about to go the same place. I'm going to start with Memento yeah. and start there. What do you get there? You get a very odd narrative structure where the the end of the movie, it meets in the middle because you are... You are going backwards. You are going backward in some sense, and you are going forward. You are going backward in the color portions of the movie. You are going forward in the black and white portions of the movie. Backward in color, forward in black and white, and you meet in the middle in this crime movie. I mean, you're starting at a murder 
at the very beginning of the movie. You're starting there, or at least somebody being shot. Uh, you don't know for what reason or what purpose yet, but you start with somebody being shot, and then all of a sudden, the web of deception just starts to get crafted and formed all throughout this movie with, with Guy Pierce in the center of it as this guy with these tattoos trying to figure out what exactly is going on. And who is Sammy Jankis and all of this and, and different different elements like that as as it all gets woven in and then you get these other characters who come along who are who's Dodd? You know, is he is he a friend or is he not? You know, who is really on his side and who isn't well, within you should, the course of this movie? And you have to go back and watch it again to really get a sense of it. But again, and then the twist at the end is He's been doing this over and over again. Well, the one thing we're leaving out is the way that the narrative structure is set up. The movie is told in reverse for a reason. Uh, His character cannot form long-term memories. So essentially, you forget what just happened. So by showing the movie scenes in opposite order, you don't know, just like the character, what has happened before this. So you're starting from brand new, just like the character is. So after the scene that you see... They'll play the scene that took place just before, which changes the whole narrative of what happened in the first scene, a.k.a. the last scene, and you're in the same position as the movie character until you finally come to the beginning and it starts to make sense and it kind of meets the beginning and the end and the middle, which you kind of have to see it to understand it. I think there's a way on your DVD where if you need to and you can't follow it, it will. There's a selection, of some sort of Easter egg, where it will show you the movie in sequential order, which takes away from it. I think I actually watched it one time that way. It takes away from the movie. Oh, it's not as time. good. Yep. Not as good. But it is something that. Boy, talk about the whole movie is a twist. The entire movie is a twist. Yep. Only to find out that uh, he himself is probably responsible for this. But somebody's yep. going to manipulate him into taking care of his dirty work by convincing him to know this other guy is responsible and leading him to him so that he'll do the dirty work for him. Well, actually, and it was it was Teddy who I was talking yeah. about instead of Dot. Instead yeah. of Dot, it was Teddy who um who you wonder, is he a friend or is he not along the way? Well, in reality, <laughs> Don't believe he's just lies. this guy. He's just this guy who gets picked out by by Leonard and he and and he just ends up focusing in on him as being the person when in reality no. If you've, just picked a guy out. if you've never seen Memento, budget time to watch the movie twice, right in a row. Watch it, you'll see what's going on, and then watch it again. And it'll turn it into like a, I think it's a two-hour movie, so call it a four-hour movie, really. And it is it's enjoyable both times, and for completely different reasons. It's a well-crafted movie. That's the reason that Christopher Nolan, who's going on to do all kinds of great things, Dark Knight Trilogy and so forth, where there's a reason why he is so renowned, and that's one of the first big ones. Well, another movie that then came along later from him that that used narrative structure to create a twist within it was The Prestige. Oh, yeah. Because you get a story that is told at, at, varying, to- at varying points. You start it on, on one line, then all of a sudden you're jumping back at another time in the timeline, and then you're even jumping back further. In another time, in the timeline, and then is the Dark and then Knight it starts trilogy, moving forward. Is the Dark Knight movies the only movies he's ever made that have been somewhat linear as far as how they've been shown? Inception certainly isn't. Uh, Memento well, darn well isn't. Well, Inception, Inception is linear, with except for some flashbacks. The problem is it's linear. 
but then it drops down from a, a layer conscious and level down another layer because you're going through the layers of the subconscious yeah, yeah. but i mean this, if you're watching the movie and you don't know what's going on why are they the same people that were just in a mountain fortress in the snow how come now they're all in a bus and now how how if you don't understand the jumps maybe that's the best way to put it a movie that's got a, a non-jump narrative you know is the dark knight the only nolan movie that he's ever told that's like that. Maybe Dunkirk, I guess, a little bit. No, even then, it's oh, not linear. Oh, Dunkirk is big time non-linear. Non-linear, that's, yeah. That's three plots. That's one is very long in terms of length. One is shorter, and then one is very that's short. Right, yeah, and they're all coming together. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I don't think he, other than Dark Knight movies, those are the only linear pretty much movies he's ever told. But I think it's a great way to create twists. Yeah. Because you are so busy wrapping your mind around where am I in the plot right now that then when the twist comes, and and in the case of The Prestige, we're talking about the fact that uh, it's a magician rivalry and you're wondering who's going to get the upper hand in the end. Um, And Christian Bale versus Hugh Jackman, basically, with, with how it plays out. And then um, in the end, you realize that Christian Bale's character is a twin. And before that, Angier's ha- his rival, played by Hugh Jackman, had had basically been able to get him on death row um, for murder. And he he it's another double twist. It is another double twist, and he had intricately woven a pathway for that to happen. And then he's able to take Christian Bale's daughter out of all that. But then then he gets the big reveal that. It was a twin, and and then of course he's shot as he gets that realization as the the twin of one of Christian Bale's two in in the character he he shoots him and then is able to, to but, take but don't his forget back. don't forget the second twist where this big show that uh, um, Angiers is putting on uh, Hugh Jackman um, everything he does this it creates a duplicate of himself well you can't have two and then three and then four running around. So every night you don't know if you're going to be the one that comes out the door on this magic show or if you're going to fall through the trap door and be locked into your watery death. Be the one in the box. You know, and to to understand what, what, you have to see the movie to understand it. We did say there are spoilers. Uh, At the end of the movie, you see these metal cases all lined up full of water and each one of them is one of Hugh Jackman's duplicates that died in the middle of of the magic show. But the illusion was that he did this thing, this completely different thing. So it's it's a really fantastic show that's got this double twist at the end, and the tagline of the movie is, are you watching closely? Yes. And if you are, you're going to see how it all kind of comes together. That's one of those that you have to go back and watch it again, but again, it, you get that created, that, that mo- notion created that I have to go back and see this again in your mind, because of the way that the plot carried out. And with the plot being one that, again, it was a a non-linear plot, but it still fit together. Going back to your initial criteria that you gave at the beginning of the episode, Dave, it still fit together in terms of continuity. It just took that continuity of the plot, and it put things out of order in the way that it was shown. But it still worked, like mm-hmm. in the use of you know diaries to go back, you know, and then you get a time jump that happens then, or all of a sudden you're back in the present day a little bit as you are starting to unfurl the the entire complexity of this story that got it to the point where it is at the beginning of the movie, and that's part of what I think creates the twist is you have again this this idea in your mind plot wise, 
and that also helps create a little bit of the the twist element to be it's able a, to happen. All Nolan's movies are well woven stories, and the twists they work because it is part of the story. Um, the way that they are shown, the way they are told, the way they come together or not come together in the way that you expect them to come together, they're well-crafted stories. They're well-shot. They're well-acted. Everything about them so that as bizarre as the twists may turn out to be, they work. So let's take a different twist on twists. Um I'm going to go back to a movie that has a director's edition to it, that when you've seen the theatrical version of it, it's one thing. And then you watch the director's edition, and it's a whole other thing. We're going to go back to James Cameron's. The, it's, it's looked at as the black sheep of his work, but it's not really The Abyss from 1989. It's about underwater drill workers, and they are, there's been a U.S. submarine that's gone down very nearby, and they're tasked to go and recover it because they can't do a full job because there's a hurricane closing in. So they drop some Navy SEALs down to help them, and that what is what it becomes. But then it turns out that maybe it's not really something going on, but there's actually aliens that live at the bottom of this abyss, and they were indirectly responsible for this. And so the end of the movie is its own little thing. And that was the movie. Now, the movie did okay at the box office. It didn't do great, and it's looked at as maybe James Cameron's is the black sheep of his work. But then if you see the director's edition to it, it changes everything. There's an entire subplot that was – the movie's long as is, but they cut the movie out four times. So if you watch the director's edition, it's like a three-hour movie. But there's a whole subplot about that the U.S. and Soviet Union, which still did exist at that time before the collapse of the Union – we're on the brink of war, and that it may very well be the Russians. You know, as far as the audience knows, they know that it really isn't the Russians. The characters don't know this. So you have Michael Bean's Navy SEAL character in the theatrical edition. There is a, a condition that can happen when you're, sub, when you're really submerged, I mean, way down low, where the pressure of the environment down there really gets to you, and you can break and have a psychosis episode. And that's what his character is going through through the movie. So here's this Navy SEAL who's seeing Russians in his soup, and he's completely devolving into madness. And it's all because of the pressure, uh, but we know it's really something else. There's aliens out there. No, it can't be aliens. It's got to be the Russians. But in the director's edition, it is quite possibly the Russians that it could be. And then there's the whole subplot that the, the very end scene that was cut from the theatrical is that the aliens are basically going to do a Noah's Ark here. They're going to kill everything on Earth because the human race has become so warlike. They're going to wipe out everything, and their technology is based on water. They're basically going to have a tidal wave overrun the entire planet Earth, and these people that are trapped below are basically going to become Noah's Ark. When they surface, every life on Earth will be gone, and they're going to start again, and so on and so forth. That whole plot is lost in the theatrical edition. Did it kind of make you wish that the extended director's cut had been the final cut? You can see both of them. There's there's arguments to um, whether or not uh, one is better than the other. I don't know if I'd say one is better than the other. They're just different. Uh, the work is fantastic. The entire movie is filmed underwater, pretty much. Uh, and they really filmed it in a tank. It was actually in an old nuclear reactor. They built this set and then filled this reactor with water, and uh, interior sets were also filmed there. It was it was it was an it was an enduring performance to get through the filming of this movie. Some pe- some of the actors nearly had psychotic breakdowns uh, doing this movie. And it's not a bad movie. It's well acted. It's well shot. It's very it's very Cameron esque, but it does have 
its issues, but it's not to say that it's not worth a watch. It's a very good one. And I don't know if I'd recommend one over the other. It's just very different. Um, clearly, uh, and when they did the ending, there's a big shot of a tidal wave that's coming in, and ILM did it practically, and Cameron didn't really like the effects. We cut it out, but when he signed a new deal with 20th Century Fox, part of the deal was I want money to go back and finish this movie so I can do it right. And So you can see on the DVD both versions of it. It's not like it's a lost version of the movie. You can see it. Okay. Um, it's I don't know. One is better or the other. It's just different, and it changes the narrative. I guess it depends on is this more of a descent into madness or is this heightening tension because of all kinds of things going on with a big – Biblical message, maybe, at the end of the movie, I guess, is how way you can look at it that deals with aliens. A lot of people, though, say that the jarring turn at the end where you find out that clearly these are aliens and the way it goes is kind of a jarring left turn. So it depends on your perspective, but it's not. It's definitely time well spent to watch it, but it is a longer movie. And if you're going to watch both versions, that's, what, five, six hours? So maybe watch one one week and watch the other yeah. the next week and let your mind kind of be changed a little yeah. bit. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you're watching pretty much the same movie, but when you start changing some things to it, it is kind of a twist, especially if you've seen one and now you're going to see the other. It's a whole different movie experience because of it, at least the underlying narrative of it. So in a way, twist, yeah, it's a twist on a twist. But if the whole movie changes. Here's the bottom line, I think, Dave, when we reflect on movie twists. One of the things that we love about going to the movies is we are being transported into another world and we are stepping into it. Sometimes it is a picture of our own world. Sometimes it's something totally different. But we come in with this notion of how we think things are going to go and how we think things are going to play out. And the great thing about a movie twist is the way that it kind of flips that on your on on its head a little bit. How you have the the audience thinking one thing, whether you've gained their trust in some way or you have led them down a narrative path in some way or you are twisting and turning the path as you go along to set up for what's going to be ultimately the the big plot twist itself or multiple twists. And then everything gets shaken up. It just shakes that world up that you have stepped into, and it's it, it's big. It's a big trust thing between viewer and and movie creator because you're gaining their trust and then you're flipping their trust. But it's part of the adventure of being in that particular movie. Let's let me give you a bad example of a twist, and this is a movie I know you haven't seen because we're going to go to the first Mission Impossible movie. So, I know you're not a big Tom Cruise fan. I've shown you the Mission Impossible movies from three on. Which I have enjoyed, Yeah, and those way. And those were good. So, the first two Mission Impossible movies, they were what they were. Some people liked them, some people didn't. The first one, I don't like it. Because the whole idea is that uh, Tom Cruise's character, Ethan Hunt... The agency suspects that he's a mole and he's a bad guy. So the whole movie Because the mission goes wrong. Because the mission goes wrong, but there's no way it could have gone wrong unless somebody maybe on the inside was working against it. And it turns out that it was the Jim Phelps character, uh, John Voight. But the whole agency is after Ethan Hunt and his team. While Ethan knows that he's innocent and he's trying to prove and break in and get stuff to prove that he is innocent and all this. And then there's a big twist at the end where it turns out the agency knew all along that Ethan was the good guy. And, in fact, they were trying to get Jim Phelps to reveal himself, which is ultimately what happens. But when you're talking about a twist and it has to work, that means the narrative has to work and the story has to work. There are scenes in that movie 
that are played out for no other reason other than to throw off the audience. If there's a character, I forget the name of the character, he's with the agency and he and Ethan Hunt have this exchange in a restaurant and they're talking to one another. If they're both in on this plot and they know, then why wouldn't they just kind of drop rank and talk about what the actual truth is? But they really only have that scene to throw off the audience. And then at the end you find out they're on the same side working together. Who else was going to see this conversation in the first point? So now it's thrown off just to throw you off. We're going to put in a twist just to put in a twist. When you start breaking it down and you watch the movie again knowing the twist, you realize this twist totally doesn't work. It's just meant simply to throw you off. And structurally, it doesn't hold up. It doesn't work. And it kind of, in a lot of ways for me, kind of wrecks the movie. Not to mention that there was controversy as well for longtime fans of Mission Impossible who had watched the the original you show. You especially. Yeah, myself too. But I, I looked this up even, and there was controversy about this. Oh, because yeah. for people who had watched the original show as well as the revival show that came in the 80s, they knew Jim Phelps to be the leader, the good guy. They knew him to be somebody who was who was unassailable when it came to betraying the agency. And then all of a sudden... He's the guy who's betraying it all. It it just was uncomfortable to hear that the Jim Phelps character had been had been stricken down that way. Even guys who had been in the Mission Impossible series originally spoke out against it. Greg Morris, who played Barney Collier in the original series, he said he left the movie in the middle of it because he was disgusted with the way that they had changed the character. Of course, they went to Peter Graves, who who had been Jim Phelps, and he didn't like the way that the character had been portrayed. Martin Landau didn't like that. He had played Roland Hand in the original series. And he also said that he felt that the movie was not Mission Impossible-esque because they focused so much on the action element rather than the thinking element that had made Mission Impossible what it was originally. And I think the later movies have done a better job of blending the two, but it was a good critique of that movie in particular that in some ways you can't with a twist or you can't with with that betray the trust of narrative continuity or what you know to be the case. Or in in this case... Like you said, there were elements even within the movie that that were out of place or that were that were just red herrings thrown in there to just blindly throw you off and they didn't really have much bearing. And that's fine so long as under scrutiny when you're really looking at how the story and narrative works, if it's still faithful to what's going on, fair game. But if you're only there to throw off the audience and when you look at it from a structure standpoint, it doesn't hold up, cheat. And if you can't well-design a story, then your twist is going to fall on its face. And unfortunately, that's become the case with M. Night Shyamalan, who masterfully did it with The Sixth Sense. This will bring us back to where we started. Now, every movie he's got, you know there's a twist coming. So now you're looking for it, and you're waiting for it. So he's kind of outsmarted himself. Oh, you know that Bruce Willis is going to you know, be dead at the end of the movie. Well, now the next one, you know that he's going to turn out to be some sort of a superhero, and there's going to be a twist, and Elijah is actually the super evil bad guy. You know there's a twist coming. The village is actually not set back in the 1600s or whenever. It's actually current. You know, it's so that's the twist. You know something is coming and it kind of works against him. If that's your if that's your bread and butter, he's the twist filmmaker. Well, then you know you're going to go in like it's a whodunit before you even know what's been done. You know something's coming. So, yeah, twists. And I do like The Village. I did like uh, Unbreakable. I thought those were good movies, but I think they weren't served all that well. So it is what it is. But, yeah, twists, you know, if you can get a good one that really throws you off for a loop, I'm in. 
And I look forward, Dave, to seeing how future movies are going to try to come up with new ways to create a twist. Because we've seen so many different ways to do it. And yet, the, the, film, the film directors who are on the cutting edge, who are creating new ones, who are doing it well, they find new ways to make them good. So part of me is going, I can't wait to see what is going to be out there in the future as far as what's a new twist, what's a new way of creating a twist that is going to be fresh and something that we haven't seen before. Well, here comes Nolan's working on another one, and I have a feeling that it's just about to hit theaters here once upon a time in Hollywood, Tarantino. I'm, I, I don't know this, but I'm willing to bet there's some kind of a twist here. I mean, they got, you've got the Hollywood stuntman, and then in the background, Charles Manson murders. There's some sort of a connection that's coming up. I mean, we haven't seen the movie yet, so who knows what it'll be. But uh, I, I have a feeling there's some kind of an interesting twist that'll tie it all together in a way that's more than just so-and-so was in the same room with another guy, and there's a connection there. There's going to be some kind of an intricate twist here that I, I could feel something coming. But maybe I'm wrong. Haven't seen the movie. Just kind of have a vibe. I'm planning to go here this yeah, week I, and check I, it out. I, I, so. I'm in. Yeah. Probably by the time you're listening to this, the movie will be out and you will have seen it. And you'll say, Dave, you're totally wrong. Or, no, he totally knew it. He knew it was coming. We'll find out. I do think you're right, though, with the bead that you're on with where it might be so, going. Uh, something. Why would you have these two seemingly unrelated storylines? There's going to be some connection. Like the movie Crash. Everything is so related in some way something's going to have more than just an on-the-surface tie, especially since this is Tarantino, and he knows how to weave a yarn. Yeah. I just said the term, weave a yarn. I'm officially going to get my <laughs> AARP card. But you're right, though. It works. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2, just down from the airport. They've got their $5 movie nights on Tuesdays. They are also in our Big Deal store as well. You can find movie passes in there for discount savings in our Big Deal store. You you do have to wait, in some cases, about two weeks or so after the movie is out to be able to use those comp tickets. But you can check that out if you want to save a little bit. It's the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2. Thanks for joining us today. No twist ending from us. No. I don't think. Are you really, Nick? No, 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 no. We're filling in. We're filling in. We're stunt doubles. Yes, we are. We are the Brad Pitt and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio stunt doubles. Yeah. We're the long con, yeah, basically, long con. is what we are. Although maybe <laughs> maybe that's what this whole thing has been, is just a twist. This whole, a big... this whole podcast has been a twist. It's Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. And then you realize, hey, wait a minute, it's just Joel and Dave. Is this the end of Scooby-Doo? Let's see who you really are. (laughs) Why, it is Rick and Nick. (laughs) I would have gotten away with it, too, you meddling kids. Those of you who weren't born recently enough, that's Scooby-Doo. I'm not wearing a mask. Don't try to rip my head off, all right? (laughs) I'm Joel Hoover. I'm allegedly Dave Brooks. Allegedly. And we will see you at At the the movies. movies.